Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the latest from the Biden administration on infrastructure, healthcare, and the unemployment situation with Douglas Holtzegan. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Notice I have new digs. I'm actually visiting the uh, in-laws in Seattle, so I am uh, in, in a new location. How is the uh, heat wave going for you guys out there? Unfortunately, um, it has passed. Um, it was a 108 um, a couple of days ago. It's going to be 75 today. I can take 75. <laughs> that sounds a lot better. It's been pretty much the same here in the swamp where everything feels humid and I think it hit a feels like 105 yesterday, so that was not fun. I believe it. Let's jump into today's conversation. The Biden administration is transparently seeking to change and certainly expand the role of the federal government. Um, today, I'd like to focus on the three areas of proposed bigger government. Let's start with infrastructure, uh, which initially was grouped into the president's more than $2 trillion uh, American jobs plan, part of his entire Build Back Better plan. There's, there is much more focused infrastructure deal struck by a bipartisan group of senators and the president. The clock's in at about $1.2 trillion. Um, so let's put aside the politics around this deal for a moment, and we, we know there's a lot around that, and talk about what is in this package and if there is a pro-market argument for such a big government intervention in the nation's infrastructure. What do you think? So let's let's first look at where they started. If you look at the administration's opening bid, uh, it was bigger in two ways. Uh, first, the dollar figure was much, much bigger, but the scope was much larger and included $400 billion in aging infrastructure, which uh, is really a, uh, an expansion of the Medicaid uh, long-term care services. Um, if you include the entire Build Back Better program, they, there's the family infrastructure of paid leaves and child credits and uh, earned income tax credits and, and healthcare subsidies. And so the scope of the social safety net gets much, much larger. The scale gets, you know, trillions of dollars larger. And what the Senate bipartisan deal does is narrow the scope dramatically. But let's focus on more traditional hard infrastructure, which would be roads, bridges, ports, airports, the like. Uh, uh, the 21st century equivalent, which is broadband, make sure that we get connectivity and cross the digital divide and, and really focus on those things. So that's number one, much, much tighter focus. Number two, really a lot less money. Uh, the 1.2 trillion is if you extrapolate this over 10 years and you count what's already in the, the quote baseline, things we're planning to do anyway. If you look at it only over the scope of the deal and look only at new money, you're at about 600, you're at half of that. So They've cut back substantially the commitment of new money and the, and the ways that you're going to spend it. Fair enough. Uh, you also wrote a dish earlier in the week talking about how dynamic scoring is will be included in this process. Could you walk us through what, first of all, what uh, dynamic scoring is for people that you know might not know and how it plays into this debate? Uh, sure. Uh, in conventional quote scoring, uh, the Congressional Budget Office looks at a piece of legislation and calculates uh, how much will it change the revenue coming into the Treasury over the next 10 years, how much will change the spending going out of the Treasury over the next 10 years, and thus the impact on the budget as a whole over the next 10 years. And those numbers are called the score. And when it does a conventional score, 
Uh, it first does a forecast of the economy and a forecast under current law of what the budget will look like, and it freezes that. That's sort of the starting point for it, or for scoring every bill. And every bill is scored against that very same economics projection and budgetary projection. There are some things, however, which are really designed to change the projection. That's the whole argument for infrastructure, right? You want to do enough in the way of uh, these, these core infrastructure projects to change the productivity of the economy and thus change that economic projection. And so a dynamic score allows that to happen. You take into account the growth effects of the legislation itself. And in this case, what you would hope is that you spend it well enough that you get additional growth. You get additional revenue that comes from that growth and the net cost to the budget is smaller than, than the starting point. That's what the Democrats want. The interesting development is that the, the big push for dynamic scoring has always been from the conservative side and the impact of tax uh, policy, tax cuts in particular. For the Democrats to get on board with this is, is really uh, a new development, um, but it's conceptually correct. I mean, dynamic scoring doesn't belong on one side of the budget or the other. Um, it's is this a policy big enough to affect the growth of the economy? And the answer for the infrastructure bill is probably yes. But I guess the cautionary note, uh, having been through this mill many, many, many times, is that it's never the silver bullet people expect. They always expect this to make it really easy. If you think about it this way, you're going to spend $600 billion new money. Let's suppose we did it all this year. So snap our fingers, it happens. Suppose the, the rate of return on that's 5%. That's about where the infrastructure estimates are. So you get $30 billion in, in return on it, and the effective tax rate in the US is about 20%. So you get a fifth of that in revenue. So that's $6 billion, bucks, which is nice. You get an extra $6 billion. Bucks. You get it every year for 10 years. You've now offset that $600 billion cost with $60 billion in revenue. It doesn't pay for itself. It's not even close. Yeah, and I know a lot of times you also talk about how all of these packages are uh, take longer than advertised, and they, and so, I mean, that all plays into this as well. I stacked that to get the biggest number I could. I mean, now suppose you don't do 600 billion overnight and it takes 15, 20 years. Well, now it's the, the revenue is way in the future. So that's the, I think I think the 10% is the upper bound and that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn to the politics of this. There's obviously a lot of politics around this deal, uh, around the infrastructure package. Democratic leaders um, say they'll take down the bipartisan infrastructure deal if they don't get a sweeping second package with an expansive list of those progressive priorities that would cost trillions more. First, can Congress pass a infrastructure package in a bipartisan manner if it's tied to a much larger uh, partisan bill? Secondly, what's likely to be included in the second package, both uh, spending and tax-wise? So the, the two bills have different um, characters completely. So the bipartisan bill, as I mentioned, is a, a, a fairly focused, smaller in, in scope and, and numbers bill, and is intended to be passed in regular order using the votes of Republicans and Democrats to get to 60 in the Senate. The quote other bill is whatever's left over um, from the American Family Plan. So put in the child credits, put in the paid leave, put in the EITC, the health subsidies, come back and grab stuff that you might not have gotten in the infrastructure. So go back and get the Medicaid expansion, get some more uh, green uh, energy stuff that you might not have gotten. Put that all in the second bill. That's a much bigger trillion-ish dollars of bill, maybe two, maybe two and a half. The numbers have never settled. Um, and that's intended to be passed using special reconciliation procedures on a party-line vote in the Senate uh, that gets you to 50. And then uh, Vice President Harris casts, casts the deciding vote. So 
They have different characters. They have different legislative paths. And if they were genuinely independent, they would they would off, go off their merry way and, and live or die on, on their merits. They're not independent. They're linked. Um, Speaker Pelosi has said quite clearly, not passing this bipartisan bill until we're guaranteed the, the reconciliation bill passes. So that links them. She doesn't have to even take it up. I mean, she just has to sit on it and, and go, to, go to work on the other. And so it doesn't matter what the president says. Doesn't matter what the Senate guys think. They have the most important person in the House saying they're, they're effectively linked. And that means that they, they have a problematic future because it's going to be hard to get the, the party line vote uh, through the Senate. Not all the Democrats agree with the strategy. Not all, the, all of them like what's in the reconciliation bills they've seen so far. And they can't lose a single one of them. And they have trouble in the House as well. They can't lose more than five. So, they you know, this is a tightrope under the best of circumstances. And if it goes down, then they never take up the other one. So this is a pretty high wire act all around. And, and the outcomes are far from assured. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking when you were talking there, like the Democrats still have a lot of moderate Democrats in their in their caucus. And, you know, they have to go and get reelected. And we're getting to the point where they're starting to think about the midterms. So it doesn't guarantee that that is going to be passed on their side without Republican support. So. And, and the bipartisan bill is hardly a slam dunk. I mean, it's not like you've seen, you know, 50 Republicans screaming for a chance to vote yes. They, they managed to get 10 so far. And that means they have to get all the Democrats. And I don't think they have all the Democrats yet. So, you know, it's up in the air. Interesting. Well, it's certainly something that I'm sure will play out and we will be talking about until we can't stand talking about it anymore. So we'll, we'll leave it there for now. But this certainly leads us to um, a larger conversation about the expansion of government entitlement programs. AAF's Christopher Holt uh, recently wrote about the uh, record enrollment in Medicaid and the CHIP, the child healthcare part of that, which these programs are intended to cover the poorest and most vulnerable of us, the social safety net. But currently they cover one in four Americans, 25% of us. Doug, how did we get here and how should we think about this? And is this something we should be concerned about? Um, so we got here in two steps. Uh, step number one was uh, we, the Democrats in particular, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, um, stopped thinking about Medicaid as a targeted social safety net program restricted to the most vulnerable and needy among us, and instead as a way to get to universal coverage. And so if you're trying to get the universal coverage, you'll take any avenue that's open and you'll put as many people on it as you can. And that's what they did. They expanded eligibility for Medicaid. Uh, it was the primary uh, coverage expansion that came with the ACA. And so the philosophy that they brought to, to Medicaid changed and it became a bigger program because they did that. Second thing is during the pandemic, that philosophy dictated that no one should be thrown off of Medicaid, right? Just because we have a national health emergency, that's the worst time for people to leave. And so they actually barred in the CARES Act states from, from having anyone go off the rolls. That means that if your income went up and you know suddenly you're a millionaire, you were still on, on Medicaid. It was fine. Um, so they didn't check eligibility and they had used it for expansions. And, and Medicaid is now 80 million people. When the clock rolls around to January 1st, say 2022, and we say the health emergency is over, states will once again be obligated to start scrubbing their rolls to check eligibility. And the stunning thing is some people estimate as many as 25% of those on the rolls would go away. So that's 
that's a lot. <laughs> 20, 20 million people. Uh, I don't think the Biden administration is going to want to see 20 million people leave Medicaid. So they're scrambling like mad right now to sort of figure out how they're going to manage this. All of that reflects a very different philosophy. If you really believe this should be restricted to a targeted group of people who are especially needy, you let that 25% go and you put them in the in the exchanges or they, they get a job and get employer insurance or something and, and, you, and you take care of the program and its base. But that's not the philosophy of everyone right now. So that's what we've seen. Yeah, certainly it sounds like we should all be concerned about it and, and, and watch. But, you know, Chris also noted that the administration celebrated the record enrollment in these safety net programs. But one of the reasons that the roles are so large is, is that during the pandemic, as you mentioned, the federal government prevented states from ensuring all enrollees truly qualified. How will the administration respond to this as states return to normal operation? It, they, it they, seems like they, it's going to be a big deal. They celebrate the record enrollments because it's a way to get people covered. Anyone covered counts as a, as, as a victory in that, in that mindset. It doesn't matter how they got there. It doesn't matter whether it's appropriate that they're there. They're covered and, and a, a victory celebration is in order. If they lose their coverage because they're not eligible, there will be no celebration. Um, you know, this will be, be back. There is no joy in Mudville. Um, the Medicaid program has struck out and, and they're going to have to get them somewhere else. Uh, so this this is really rep- represents the polar differences in philosophy toward health insurance between the, the parties and the wings of the of the ideological spectrum right now. They're, they're very different objectives and they, they really come to very different conclusions um, and and we, we witness that every day in the healthcare debate. Yeah, is there a fundamental shift um, in the way this this administration is thinking about welfare programs in the United States? They want them bigger. They want them uh, eligible, uh, well into the middle class, uh, not restricted to a social safety net. It's a much more European style, broad based social welfare system uh, with which with much broader eligibility and. The only problem is they they want to pretend that they can do it without having the middle class pay any of the costs. In Europe, they pay the price. They pay 20, 25% value added taxes and they're they're footing the bill for the benefits they receive. This administration wants to pretend that they can just tax rich people and provide it. And that won't add up in the end. Gotcha. Finally, I'd like to turn to the unemployment situation. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion over the last year around the unemployment insurance supplement. We've talked about it, I think, probably upwards of 20, 20 podcasts at this point, and how that has affected participation in the labor force. Um, it's set to expire September 6th, but some states have already moved, removed that this extra benefit. What have we learned from the experience of these states? Well, we haven't learned anything yet. Um, we, we, I, I take that back. We haven't seen in the employment data what happens yet. Most of those um, governors who chose to withdraw from the federal supplemental program uh, had effective dates in June. And so in in the the recent past that happened, we're going to get the June data um, on Friday, July 2nd. And so we'll see the for the first time. Now, that'll be a snapshot in very short aftermath of that. So I don't expect a lot of drama in those numbers. But as the summer progresses, if the the supplements, the big impediment to participation and employment that we expect we're going to see a divergence between those states who dropped it and those who didn't, uh, and everybody should be out by by Labor Day. I'll just point out there have been some Democrats proposed extending it, and so you know, that that tells you the difference again in the philosophy across the ideological spectrum 
Um, they, there, there really is a, a belief that somehow it's appropriate still to have this, this uh, essentially $15 an hour supplement. Um, so it's a big, it's a big deal. So you mentioned the, the June jobs report. We're going to get that tomorrow. What are you expecting um, and what are you watching for? Um, I, I'm, I'm expecting what most people are, which is we've been uh, grinding along. It's about a half a million jobs a month. I expect it to be a little above that. Given the ranges, that's six or 700,000 uh, jobs created. Unemployment rate will tick down some, probably be five, seven, five, six. And I don't expect a lot of drama out of those numbers. The places to look for real action are in two places. On the household side, uh, does labor force participation rise? We're still well below the, the pre-pandemic highs on the fraction of the population that's looking for jobs. Uh, we need to bring back about 4 million people to get where we used to be. Uh, and on the employer side, uh, in the previous two reports, we've seen average hourly earnings go up dramatically. We've seen uh, hours of work go up uh, strongly. And that's meant that weekly payrolls, number of bodies times hours worked times uh, wages, were rising at very strong rates, so about 11% annual rate in the last report. That's a really hot labor market quietly. And, and if that continues, I, that's, that's something that we really ought to pay attention to. Interesting. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is a great discussion. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time out in Seattle and come back to us soon. I uh, can't wait to be back. And um, we'll, we'll do this from the confines of the worldwide headquarters of the American Action Forum. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Doug. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.